Hey friends, Ashton here and welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. It is an absolute honor and privilege to invite and have our guest back on again. I believe this is her third time to join us. She's got a new book coming out very soon called The Journey Towards Wholeness. And you know her work in the world connected to the Enneagram. Suzanne Stabile, she is um, a beautiful soul, a voice I trust, and a heart that has spent a lifetime near the divine. And every time I get the chance to talk with her, um, I'm just so honored and so thankful. And so with that being said, let's do it again for the third time. Welcome back, Suzanne Stabile. Thank you for having me. I'm, um, you know, you're down the road. I wish we were in the same room, but I'm going to make this work. <laughs> Looking at you on a screen. Well, hey, uh, technology allows us a beautiful thing like this. So I'm, yeah, I'm, it does. Su- I'm super excited. So we may need to play catch up with some folks that are new to our community and maybe didn't uh, get to hear some of our past interviews. And I can't imagine them not being familiar with your work, but maybe they're not. So when, when you kind of introduce yourself and your work in the world, where do you begin? Um, I, I began pretty much by talking about the fact that in my early to mid thirties, I made a commitment to try to add more compassion to the world. I grew up in a farming and ranching community in the panhandle of Texas. And I, um, grew up with 5,000 people around me who parented all of us, modeled behavior for all of us. Um, I've watched lots of farmers stand around a pickup truck and say very little (laughs) and learn a lot from one another. My dad was the doctor in that community and he practiced medicine there for 57 years. And he chose that over other offers that he had in 1927. So I thought, you know, I, I need to choose what I want to add to what is good in the world and then see if I have something to say. Hmm. So that's, that's the beginning point of me deciding to try to begin a wisdom journey of some kind. I'm uh, married to the best human I know, and he was a Catholic priest until he was 40 and he went to high school seminary at 14. So his way of being in the world includes uh, silence and sincerity at its best. And um, he uh, has stature that is uh, indescribable. Hmm. And I thought if I'm going to walk beside this person, then I need to figure out what my voice is and what I have to say. And we have these four beautiful children that now have, uh, we have nine grandchildren now. So my journey has been all about um, what is mine to do? What do I have to offer that is good? What um space do I have to be challenging? And what is it if I don't do it, nobody else can or will. Hmm. And tomorrow's my 71st birthday. Happy birthday. And, 
Thank you. <laughs> so I'm uh, I'm in now for a good while, and in um, awareness comes easier hmm. the older you get. Well, that's good news. <laughs> I, well, I think it's because you have to slow down. Yeah. But I also think it's because you're very aware of your regrets mm -hmm. and you're very aware of what you wish you had done more. Mm -hmm. And so if awareness emerges or becomes easy, more easily accessible as we mm -hmm. age, um, mm -hmm. and this is totally off script, by the way, but let's just go yeah, down that you know. road. Um, at, at what point? have you learned the connection with comfort with mystery in, in congruence with also that emerging awareness? Yeah. I, um, I grew up in the United Methodist church, but I was Catholic for 10 years. I taught at Bishop Lynch high school here in Dallas and I was invited to teach theology there. So I went to get enough hours in theology that I would be able to teach and I kind of got absorbed into the Catholic Church. And I'm so thankful for that time because they have the rest of us beat when it comes to living with mystery. Hmm. It, it's, uh, it's part of the ethos mm -hmm. of being in that world. And um, certitude and predictability are not available. And, you know, I'm not a preacher and I have been asked to preach a couple of times on laity Sunday in the Methodist church. And I tell you, I'm terrible. Like I can teach for eight hours, but I can't say anything in 20 minutes. I'm terrible. <laughs> but I, I was uh, talking actually to Richard Rohr about, um, a, a homily that he preached one time where he said that he really thought the sin in the garden of Eden was about people wanting certainty and predictability and their inability to live with mystery. Whoa. And I've been thinking about that since, and that he probably said that to me 25 years ago. Wow. So, um, the older you get, the more clingy, the, the more you want to hold on to, and the more you are aware that you have to let go of things. And it, it is the perfect paradox of what am I allowed to hold? What am I allowed to know? What do I have to allow to fall away? And how do I live with the mystery of the goodness of allowing things to have had their season and live into something new. Hmm. Well, it's autumn, so maybe we should just stop this podcast right now and just let it be. Let let, <laughs> let that hover there for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> um. Wow. Yeah. You know, there is. It's a dance, right? Of yeah, it is. Of holding it, of letting it go of holding it for a time, knowing it's just, it's just uh, this temporary and then you let it go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well said. Um, maybe that's a whole nother conversation one day. Maybe it you is. And I can walk yeah. Down the let's road. do it. You, you've um, got some work coming out in the world that we need to talk about. <laughs> all right, let's do that. So the journey towards wholeness. Now this is your, 
oh, at least third book that I'm familiar yep. with as of late. Right. Um, I guess, uh, you know, I ask every author, why this book, why now, uh, with what you've put into the world already. Um, t- talk to me about just kind of a, a bird's eye view of why, why this, the journey towards wholeness as the title of this latest book. Okay. I think the Enneagram is a remarkable body of wisdom that when taken seriously and when studied thoroughly, it can become a companion for the journey. Um, Along with other spiritual practices, you know, people often ask me what's dangerous about the Enneagram. And the only answer I have is that the, the danger in the Enneagram is that you take it to be more than it is. It's just one spiritual wisdom tool. And it's a good one, but by itself, it doesn't compare to the, the wisdom that's available if it's put together and paired with other yeah. wisdom practices. Yeah. Um, so I would say that The Road Back to You is about uh, information, I think, well presented so that people can actually know what their personality type is. Mm. I don't think you can get there with a quiz or a, like it, it's a different kind of work because I, everybody falls into one of the nine types, but then that means there are millions and millions of people who are the same type. So how can that much difference be embodied in one place? Yep. Right. Yep. And so I think to begin a journey, uh, you got to kind of know what your foundation is. The path between us is because once people learn the Enneagram and kind of get over themselves a little bit, then they want to know, well, what what number is my mother or brother or neighbor? And I don't know that you can figure that out fully. I think everybody has to go on that journey themselves. But what the path between us offered is a way for you to know how to treat other people the way they want to be treated hmm. and a way for you to tell other people who you are and how you see the world. And there are certain things that work and certain things that don't work. I, I'm an Enneagram two. My oldest daughter, Joey is an Enneagram eight and we are very, very different from one another. And yet we share a line on the Enneagram. Yep. And uh, so I, uh, I think relationships require a great deal of energy and we ought to have an opportunity to treat people like they want to be treated. So Joey, my oldest, called me one morning a long time ago. She teaches the Enneagram in corporate worlds and settings now full time and she's quite good. But she called me a long time ago and she said early in the morning, she said, mom, I've been thinking, I don't, I don't really think the golden rule applies to eights. <laughs> Which is a thing an eight would say, uh, yes, right? So. Like, that's not a surprise. And so I said, really? Well, wh- what would make you say that? And she said, well, I treat people exactly like I want to be treated. And it doesn't usually go well. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought... Well, you got something there, right? Yes, yes. And so that sent me on the path of what if we could 
put together um, some things that would help us know how other people want to be treated Mm -hmm. and how they hear and how they see. And so that's the path. The journey toward wholeness then is about pulling together what you can learn from the other two uh, little journeys Mm -hmm. and um, how you can offer wisdom to the world. So one of the things you may have heard Father Roar say in your time with him, I've heard him say it many times, is this. Information is not knowledge and knowledge is not wisdom. Hmm. And the three books uh, kind of line up in a way that the road is about information, the path is about knowledge, and the journey, I hope, is wisdom. Hmm. And that means the journey is uh, all the things that we can do, not all the things, The journey is some of the things that we can do to be in right relationship with ourselves, with others, and with God. And so I tried to do an overlay uh, on top of the existing work that talks about achieving balance in the three centers of intelligence. And I actually... uh, sold the book to, or the idea of the book to IVP before COVID, Hmm. but it opens with uh, some understanding about liminal space. Yes. And so when COVID hit, I thought, oh man, I missed it because I was (laughs) writing the book. And then it uh, uh, dawned on me later that, well, no, no, I didn't miss it. Actually, now everybody knows what liminal space is. So I can speak into that perhaps with a voice that will help us um, learn from this numbing experience of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I I think so much of um, Enneagram work does immediately lend itself uh, or teaching lends itself to just that number identification and and it kind of ends there i i think transformation balance wholeness um if you stay on the path you dang sure get there but it's not always the beginning room hold my hand on balance and wholeness right like are they the same Do, would you consider balance and wholeness the same yes or no and, and then how we get there in that liminal space, because I, I, I think that um, that is, that's a beautiful way to have an Enneagram conversation in a book that, that no one's ever done. And I, and I think that maybe for some of our listeners here that are going, I want more balance, I want more wholeness. Well, you may, you may not know, there may be some liminal space <laughs> on your yeah. way to that place. So go ahead. Well, um, theologians that I respect, Um, have said for a number of years now that liminal space is the most teachable space. Mm. Some of them say that it's the only teachable space. And uh, good theologians can show you places in scripture where God is always pushing people into liminality. Mm. 
So for listeners who don't know a definition for liminal space, it is when you're betwixt in between. It's like the threshold. If you stand on the threshold between one room and another, then you'll get uncomfortable. If you try to stay five minutes, you'll get very uncomfortable. And the reality is it's because you're not where you were. That's right. Where you were getting stuff done and you're not where you're going, where you have stuff to get done. You're just there. And what liminality shows us in relationship to the Enneagram is how we're imbalanced. Mm. Yep. And so what I would begin with in answering your question is I would say that no, wholeness and balance are not the same thing. Uh, and balance is the path to wholeness. It's what you have to do to experience wholeness. That's good. And it's elusive. So you will be in balance sometimes, <laughs> and sometimes you won't. Yep. And so the Enneagram question gets to be, okay, how do, what, what are we talking about, and what am I supposed to balance? You know, do I have to stand on one foot? <laughs> what, like, what am I supposed to do? So the reality is this, that, there are three centers of intelligence that show themselves always in Enneagram work, and they are thinking, feeling, and doing. And in Enneagram work, we have triads and we have stances. And triads are determined by which of those three centers is dominant, and stances are determined by which of those three centers is repressed. So uh, Maurice Nicole in the 1940s was uh, doing work in England, and he wrote a paper for journal that said, this is it. There are only three centers of intelligence, and here they are. And when you lay those three centers of intelligence on top of the Enneagram, then what you find out is that twos, threes, and fours are feeling dominant, five, sixes, and sevens are thinking dominant, and eights, nines, and ones are doing dominant. And once you recognize that, then the way you kind of begin to work with that is that if you are feeling dominant, like I am, then that means that when you walk into a room, you take in information with feelings first. Yep. Yep. And that's great to know. But if you use one center of intelligence, then you aren't using the other two centers for their purpose. Mm -hmm. And it's exhausting to, to, to deal with the world with just the feeling center is hurtful and exhausting and it goes nowhere and you behave inappropriately and you do things that are not yours to do. Not that I'm familiar with this at all. <laughs> <laughs> so if we're going to achieve balance, then the first thing that we have to recognize is that if you take in information through your soul, which theologians say, whatever you take in passes through your soul first. Mm. So you get a little minute there where there's not a right, wrong, good, bad, because the soul has space for all of it. And if you take in information through your soul and then it gets to feeling dominant, thinking dominant, or doing dominant, then what you want to be aware of is you're going to have to guard your soul for the journey. Mm. And you guard your soul by trying to balance the three centers. Mm. 
you can't control your dominant center, so you try to manage it. So the first part of this new book is about managing your dominant center, and it's not easy. <laughs> and sometimes I don't even want to do it. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, meh, mm-hmm. I, I, I've done fine. I got this far. We've built a I'm life good. out of it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. So what happens when you um, spend too much of your time and give too much of yourself to your dominant center? is two things. You're being supported by one of the other centers, but the third center just decides not to play. And so the the third center just pulls back to protect itself. And it essentially stays pulled back from, I would say at least early adolescence and maybe younger until you go get it. And we don't know to go get it. The first time I heard that I was thinking repressed, I thought, what is the matter with you? Like, I I made really good grades and I graduated from a prestigious university. What are you talking about? And um, it's just not fun to hear that you're repressed in one of the three. So I'm a little bit ahead of myself. I'm going to back up and come back to triads and say this. If um, we're going to manage our dominant center, then the way we know to work on it is that we experience a lot of stress when we don't manage it. Hmm. And the Enneagram in its dynamic stability and mystical way has these moves that we make that are shown on the Enneagram by lines that connect us to other numbers. And they are intuitive moves, but they can be intentional moves. And the reality is that there's a lot of a big body of teaching that I respect and admire that suggests that when you're stressed and you go to your stress number, you go to the low side. And when you're secure and you go to your security number, you go to the high side. And I've struggled with that for a long time because I think the Enneagram is always helpful. And it doesn't help me to go from unhealthy to unhealthy eight. Mm. So I began to think, is that necessary? Like what, what's this about in this wisdom that we're trying to wrap our arms around? And what I've come up with is that I don't think you can take care of yourself without the number that you go to in security. Interesting. And so I think we have to spend a lot of time understanding the numbers that we're connected to by lines on the Enneagram. Hmm. Without the move that I make to eight, I can't say no. I do things that are not mine to do. When I speak up against an injustice, I usually, it all comes out sideways because it's, it's not been grounded in mature eight awareness and behavior. So I started a long time ago saying, I, I think we could do this different. And I think we can choose the high side of the stress number. We just have to learn to recognize when we're stressed. Mm. And giving in to your dominant center is one of the first signs that you're stressed. (laughs) So there's a component then in the triad half of the book about how to manage this stress move in a healthier way. 
and how to make choices so that your times of being in stress don't create stress for other people mm. and don't cause trouble in relationships, which kind of takes you back to the path between us. Yep. Yep. That's good. Well said. Well, and in, in looking at some of my notes here, I'm wondering if this, you could help me with this thesis. So as someone who would say dominant type three, mm-hmm. I would in stress become the peacemaker. Right. Um, right. and so when, when, when I enter liminal space, when stress begins and my initial reflex is, uh-oh, I got to go fix all this. I got to make everybody right. happy. I actually need to be asking, I mean, do I need to step back and start asking what five, six, and seven automatically ask of like, what, what do I think? Instead of, instead of move to action in a reflex is the invitation of, of managing your dominant centers, then asking the question of the triad you go to in integration and health. Is that, yeah. hold my hand on that. Okay. What I um, actually think achieves balance is using each of the three centers for its intended purpose. Mm -hmm. But you're going to want me to hold both hands because you're not going to like what I'm fixing to tell you. (laughs) That's good. No, I always ask someone to hold my hand. No one said you better settle up, settle up, Bible. You get both of them. I'm telling you. Because uh, you support, well, let me, let me, I want to be as kind as I can, because this is so hard to hear. And, and it's difficult with you, actually, because you've done a good bit of work. But you're feeling repressed, mm-hmm. not thinking repressed, right? Yeah. Yep. So if you're going to go get something, you got to go get feelings. Interesting. Because that's what's missing in your discernment not thinking. Interesting. So I'm a bit in no man's land, wherever I'm well, reaching, it's, there's the doing and the thinking. <laughs> and you're not feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're not feeling. And you're not feeling because they slow you down, feelings do, and they're messy and they're unpredictable. And they really block efficiency and effectiveness. You can't get your stuff done. And it's like, who needs that? Mm-hmm. So when people start to bring up their repressed center, because I, uh, with charm and coaxing, talk them into it, then I get notes from them that says, why would anybody want to do this? <laughs> this isn't any fun. This is ridiculous. I don't, I don't want to feel. Yeah. yeah. It's ruining my life, right? Yeah. And, and so what happens, though, with you, that the way that sickness takes care of you, is that, and it fits perfectly with everything you said, sixes are kind of the, I'm going to find out what's already happening here and find then my place in that. And you as a three think you have to make everything happen. Mm -hmm. So the way that you're cared for by your stress number is to recognize that you don't have to do everything. And some things are already in motion and they need your participation but they also need the participation of all the other people. You can be cared for by your stress number. That's right. Interesting. It's the only way you can take care of yourself. It's the only way. Huh. Wow. Man, that was good. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. Um, well, it, it, it was, as I dug into the book, um, 
and I had studied dominant centers before, but but you you were layering it in a way that, and maybe really my comfort level with just the idea of liminal space uh, has kind of given me some more runway to to, to mm-hmm. kind of experiment with this and, and maybe have some of that awareness emerge. Um, yeah. yeah, beautiful. So the so the invitation then, I mean, to to our listeners of. I know the word managing sometimes doesn't mm-hmm. feel aligned, uh, but but it is. It's right here. Managing your dominant center. What what would you say is the invitation? Therefore, that that uh, and maybe it is balance and wholeness. But talk to me about what you're inviting us to as you gain that awareness to manage yourself in that space. The reason I want you to manage your dominant center is so you can make space for your repressed center. Because when you don't, three sevens and eights are feeling repressed. Ones, twos, and sixes are thinking repressed. Fours, fives, and nines are doing repressed. And now everybody's offended. Everybody who's listening is now offended. Some people are about ready to turn it off. And they're saying, "I, you know, I thought this gal knew something about life and the Enneagram, if she thinks I'm thinking repressed, then she doesn't know me because I'm a one and I think all the time. (laughs) Well, actually what ones count as thinking is that inner dialogue with their inner critic. Mm. And that's not thinking. That's actually having a conversation with somebody nobody else hears. And what twos think about all the time is relationships. 85% of the time Minimum, I think about relationships. Mm. There are other things to do in life that need handling by me that aren't relational at the get-go. So, uh, you know, fours do all the time, but they do what they want to do. Nines do all the time. They're always doing. And sometimes they're doing what needs to be done. Sixes use thinking for uh, worst-case scenario planning. And they use all that energy for things that most often don't happen. Right, right. So I'm trying. I'm trying to, you know, put a little. Don't leave me. That's right. That's right. Let's get. Don't us leave all in. me. Let's get us all in the room. Don't leave me because I, I got something here for you. So when you're using two of the three centers, it's exhausting. Number one, and they begin to trigger each other. They're like uh, uh, being inside of a, a family where everybody's in everybody's business. And you have to separate the three centers to use each of them for what they're for. And you're not going to achieve balance without going to get the center that you use the least well. But the good thing about that repressed center is this. You haven't used it a lot and it hadn't been out in the world a lot. And so it's not all beat up like you are. And it's not cynical and it's not discouraged. It's the purest part of you. It's fresh. And so that's why when a three or a seven or an eight share a feeling with someone, it is a gift. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when I share a feeling with someone, it's exhausting because I've already shared 35 others. (laughs) It's like, what feeling do you want me to take from that? Right. But, but when I bring up thinking, it, it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. And when fours, fives, and nines bring up doing, they do what's theirs to do. And that, by its very nature, makes the world a better place. Mm-hmm. 
So it's worth the journey to go get this repressed center, but it won't do you any good to go flirt with it if you can't manage your dominant center and if you're not using your support center for what it's for. Yep, yep, yep. So talk to me then about these stances, because I, I think that four, five, nine, rep- repressed doing leads to a withdrawing stance. Three, seven, nine, repressed feeling leads to an aggressive stance. And one, two, six, repressed thinking leads to d- dependent stance. So I, I need, um, if you could kind of give me some like real world, what that looks like. Um, sure. I think that that, I know that helps me for when I enter the liminal space, I can go, oh, there's that thing I never had language for. Now I can name it. Now I yep. can move towards balance and wholeness. Yes, yes exactly. So uh, the, at the same time in the 1940s, when Gurdjieff, who's the modern grandfather of the Enneagram, is in Europe and he's got his school going and he's uh, kind of introducing the Enneagram along with a lot of other practices to people. And Maurice Nicole has done his thing in England with the three centers of intelligence. And so that's on the table now. Karen Horney, who was German-American, came out with a paper and then other work that said, all people either move toward other people, they move away from other people, or they move against other people. Hmm. And if you lay the work of Karen Horney on top of Maurice Nicole's work on top of the Enneagram, then what you find is that in every triad, there is one number that moves toward, one number that moves away from, and one number that moves against. So withdrawing means that fours, fives, and nines literally withdraw. They keep a distance between themselves and what's happening. And they all three do it for different reasons, but they don't jump in at the beginning of anything. They wait. They withdraw from people. If you move too close to one of those numbers, they take a step back, right? If you move too close to me, I hug you, right? So that's, that's what's happening with withdrawing numbers and they get what they need from inside themselves. Mm They're figuring out what they're going to do and how they're going to be in the world from inside themselves. Ones, twos, and sixes are in the dependent stance, and that literally means that they're dependent on the responses and reactions from other people to their behavior to decide what ongoing behavior is going to be and what they're not going to do anymore. Hmm. And it also means that they are uh, often giving away their power to the people that they're trying to be connected to. Depend, and when you say dependent, dependent on affirmation, dependent Sometimes. on admiration. What, what? Dependent on uh, invitation, hmm. dependent, dependent on the responses of other people, regardless of what they're doing. Interesting. Um, I was invited to teach in Assisi, Italy uh, with Father Roar. And, you know, that's a, that's a thing, that, that's right? A, like, 
He was my mentor and yeah. he taught me the Enneagram and he invited me to teach with him. And I taught a good bit at the CAC, but Italy, I, I thought, oh, okay, now, now, yep. now, now who I am. You're at ground right? zero of brother, son, That's and right. sister moon. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. So I, I was prayed up and studied up and the setup was that I would teach a know your number workshop while he did other things throughout the city about Francis and Claire with people on the first day. And then uh, we would kind of teach together for the next couple of days. And he was teaching some really great stuff on Enneagram and paradox. And I was responding a little bit to that and whatever level I could, you know, find my way in. And um, there were about 300 people there spoke uh, 17 different languages. So they had translators in the back of the room and, Good stuff going on, right? So I get up on this little stage. I'm following Father Roar, and I'm really wanting to be important and impressive and say something helpful. And I get so distracted because there's a man right in the middle of the room who just doesn't respond to me in any way. Like he doesn't laugh. He won't look at me. He doesn't, he doesn't do anything. But there are people all over the room with earphones on, headphones, because they're translating everything into German and French. Right. So I thought, well, bless his heart. He doesn't speak English. So as soon as my session finished, I went straight to him. And, you know, we all fall into that trap, I think, of just talking louder to people who don't speak our language, (laughs) thinking somehow that's going to make a difference. So I start screaming at this man, telling him that they have translators in the back of the room and that he can get it translated into French or German. and, And then he'll know what I'm saying. And I'm yelling. And he very quietly said, I speak English. And I said, well, why don't you react to anything I say? And he said, because I don't like you. (laughs) And I said, in true two fashion, why don't you like me? Because, you know, I'll be whatever you could like. Like, why don't you like me? And he said, I don't like anything about you. My goodness. So I thought, I'm, I'm never going to feel this small again. <laughs> like, I, there was a little carpet there, and I thought, I bet I can walk away under the carpet. Mm-hmm. I remember mm-hmm. thinking that exact thing. So I turned to walk away, and my mentor's right behind me. And I hear Father Roar say, Suzanne, still going after the one, are you? Mm. And I turned around and he said, you had 299 people in the palm of your hand. Why are you going after him? Wow. Mercy. That's the dependent stance. Gotcha. Because hmm. I had given him all my power hmm. because he wasn't responding to me. I felt so terrible then that Father Roar had observed all that. And I thought, you know, Holy Spirit, give me something. Just just today, give me something. And he had just said, why are you going after the one, that one guy? And I said, well, because it's scriptural. (laughs) I got to leave the 99. (laughs) That's That's good. So that's the best way I know how to talk to you about the dependent stance. I'll give you one more example. If we're teaching at our center here in Dallas, our teaching room holds about 45 people at tables. 
if we're teaching here in Dallas and somebody who's come to the church for help and the church is closed, they come over to the center and they need gas money or, you know, a bus ticket or something. If, if that happens, everybody in the room is concerned and wants to be helpful. But after that person leaves, the ones, twos and sixes are still thinking about, did I do what I should have done? Did mm. we do the right thing? Yep. Did we take care of business? Did we do it? In terms of, uh, and, and those numbers move toward other people. They come to you. Mm. Yep. Yep. Three, sevens and eights. I used Karen Horney's language for a long time. And um, I uh, said that they move against people, but I don't think that's accurate. And I think there's a problem, you know, there's potential trouble when you mix two philosophies together anyway. And the fact that they fit as well as they do is astonishing. But for my teaching, uh, based on feedback and people I love who are aggressive numbers and who I know, I, I changed that language to stand independently. Because mm -hmm. I don't actually think three, sevens, and eights stand against other people. I think they stand independently and it feels to other people like they're against them. Yes. Yes, Mr. Beal. Yes, that yeah, rings that's what true. Yep. And I think that is a, a much more um, just way uh, of talking about the reality of the whole system and that th there's grace everywhere. You know, there's, there's grace in moving toward there's grace in withdrawing, but there's also grace in standing independently mm -hmm. and not being too malleable or too quick. It's not that that energy is against it's that it's okay. Not needing anything yeah. else from, 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 from the, yes, yes, That's yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that rings true. And it's, I'm not likely to let you influence me unless you've really got something. <laughs> yeah, the smell test yeah. is pretty, yeah, pretty dialed exactly. in. Yeah, yeah. Thank goodness. Because, you know, we, we, uh, we don't like aggressive numbers until we need them. Mm -hmm. And then we want them to be as aggressive as they are capable of being. And, you know, some things have to be decided in the absence of feelings. And three, sevens, and eights do that. And some things have to be decided in the absence of thinking. Mm -hmm. And some things have to be decided in the absence of doing. Yeah. And so if you can manage your dominant center and if you can protect yourself and learn to use uh, the behavior of the number you go to in stress in times that you're stressed and if you can bring up your repressed center so that you're using all three centers for their intended purpose, then you have enough balance to take a, a look toward transformation. And then the question becomes, what are you willing to give up for transformation? Hmm. What are you willing to let go of? What are you willing to give yeah, up? Exactly. And there's that word surrender. Yeah. that we know is the magic ingredient uh, and we will avoid yeah. at all costs. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So the, this, this journey towards wholeness via a balanced person, mm -hmm. um, I, I, I think 
and, and you and I would probably could dance with this language for a long time, but I, I think we're getting, you, you're excavating your essence, right? You're, you're getting yeah, to, you're getting to that thing that always has been and always will be the place of total okayness. That's it right. is okay with what it is. It is what it is, what it is, what it is. That's right. Um, but you can't, you can't get there if you don't safeguard it. That's right. And is it, you, is it more, it, is it, it's painful to get to more peace. Yes, it is. But if you, but if you don't go through the pain, you're not going to get to more peace. That's right. Yeah. If you don't do the work, yeah. then you can't get back to who you were before you did anything wrong and before you did anything right. And you can never get fully back there in this life anyway. Mm. But you can have, uh, it, you, you can start with a glimpse and you can end with moments, mm-hmm. whole moments. And I, I think a word that we've not talked about that I, I wouldn't want to leave out of our conversation is allowing. Yep. My, my parents, uh, lived to be 89 and 92. And um, they were just highly evolved people. And when I began in my 30s and 40s to try to understand that in them, it was because they were able to allow things to fall away. Hmm. I've been saying for a time that I think willpower is a myth that's fueled by emotion. And in the Western world, we think we can make everything happen. And when you try to make your dominant center less dominant, you're using your dominant center to do that, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And repeat you that for me. Willpower is a, a myth. Fueled by emotion. Fueled by emotion. And so you can't clench your fist and grit your teeth and be balanced. You have to allow the excess to fall away to make space for your three natural resources, which are thinking, feeling, and doing, so that you can experience and glimpse and allow for essence, Hmm. essence moments. So I have a flaming four wing. Yeah. and, And you integrate to four. So maybe yeah. this would be a great place where we could encourage everyone to to dial in the autumn. Watch what the trees are doing. They are absolutely. They, they are whispering. Every one of them is saying like this, like this, yes. like this. That's exactly right. And you uh, can go for a walk and hear the whispers. And unless you're aware, not allow yourself to have a feeling about it. Hmm. you can miss it and I yeah you can miss it and I can go out and have the same walk on the same path and just have all the feels and not think about how that's related to all life Hmm. or how it's related to me or what it calls me to yeah there's our invitation yeah so good. I, you know, I could do this for hours on end, um, and uh, but I know we're all uh, pressed for time. I, I thank you for this. You brought um, buckets of wisdom 
um, and delivered it in the way that only you can. November 2nd, that's the day this book comes out. Is that right? Today, that's it. You can, you can pre-order it now. Yep. Yep. You can pre-order now everywhere and you can get it. Yeah, you'll be able to get it. Well, I don't know about anywhere, but you know, if you can't get everywhere anywhere good else. Books are bought and sold. Yeah, that's right. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so um, for our listeners that may want, maybe want to follow more of uh, you and your work in the world, where would mm-hmm. you invite them to go to? SuzanneStabile.com will get you anything you, more. It will get you more than you could ever want to know. But also our uh, ministry website is Life in the Trinity Ministry. Life in the Trinity Beautiful. Yep. Well, Suzanne, um, thank you so much. Grace and peace. Uh, again, thank you for what you do in the world. You're, you're helping us all tune up towards balance and wholeness, and I'm grateful for what you do. Right back at you. I, um, uh, you make me happy. <laughs> you're um, young and deep and kind and uh, aware and don't edit this out. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's an, an honor to know you. <laughs>